The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Oh, good. Yeah, it was really good. I think I'd heard it at some point in the past, because I hadn't listened to MacArthur in a while. Um, I, I, used, uh, I listened to him a lot more a few years back, um, but I always have listened to him in Sproul. But um, I don't know, for whatever reason, I haven't I hadn't listened to as much MacArthur as I, as I once had. But the story, um, I, I usually don't, like, I, I take the framework that we have here, and I just kind of build upon it. But the way he started this one off is a very good illustration and imagery of, of, of the church. Do you remember how it started off with with the with the lighthouse? Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. It's well, it's good, and it's uh, simple and striking uh, imagery of the church. It's very saddening and heartbreaking. I know the Dickards and the Fromms, they're, they're in Florida, I think, yeah. Man, that's going to be an awesome conference. The lineup. Yeah, Bodie Balkum's going to be there. And then the Just Thinking podcast guys, um, Daryl Harrison, who's, he's, a, he's an elder, <clears throat> I think, at MacArthur's church. And um, Virgil... Uh, Walker, and they you, have you all listened to the Just Thinking podcast? It's it's really incredible. Just Thinking podcast. So they're speaking into the cultural issues from a biblical perspective. Um, it's really good, thought provoking. Huh? That, is that you or me? <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and start. Um, Hopefully, some more people trickle in. If not, I've got all of your attention, <laughs> all two of you. Um, but we, we have a little bit of uh, a ground to cover tonight, and this is, um, like I said, this is this is going to be a little bit easier than, um, well, not easy, uh, but much more manageable than uh, the first lesson I taught, for sure. Yeah, the attributes of God. That was a uh, well, I guess I got, we got as far as we did. Uh, we got as far as we could, anyway. But um, I'm going to pray real quick, and uh, we're just going to dive right, right in, and we're going to just hit the ground running. And uh, hopefully I can cover everything. I think I should be able to. I've kind of, um, kind of sectioned off everything uh, fairly well. We'll be able to kind of connect the dots and hopefully I'll be able to paint a picture of the whole thing with each broad stroke of the talking points. Um, all right, so I'll go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time that we get to gather together, Lord, around as a, as a body of believers, uh, body believers that have been brought to faith by you and, 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 and through faith in Jesus Christ. It is to him that we have our marching orders. At the end of the Gospels, we are commissioned to go out in all the world proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, to go make disciples and to baptize, teaching them to obey all that you have given us. Father, I pray that you would please help me as your teacher um, up here tonight, Lord, that I would honor you in everything that I do and say, that there would be nowhere in and amongst all the things that I talk about that goes beyond uh, the scope of your truth or underneath it to undermine it in any way. That Father may use your word as the foundation upon which we will build our case tonight for evangelism and the believer. And Father, I pray that it would uh, edify, encourage, um, 
and even in some areas uh, convict us of where we fall short. Help us to be better stewards of, of, this, of this gift that we've been given, this grace that you have given us, Lord. We're stewards, we're entrusted with it, and we must be about the business of loving those who do not know you, Lord. Out of love for you, we are to love our neighbor, and all this is the law and the prophets. Father, help us to do this, Lord. Amen. Okay. So, evangelism and the believer. Um, I'm just going to kind of go over our motives, or not motives, but um, objectives of this particular lesson. So, we're going to, one of the things that is going to be a constant through your Christian pilgrimage and it's something that is, 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 it takes place when you come to faith in Christ is you, you have now a, a, a treasure that you want to share with other people, right? And so one of the, one of the, one of the things I want to do tonight is to motivate you um, to have a heart for the lost, to enlarge your heart for those who do not know Jesus Christ, um, and to help, uh, like we just briefly talked about to overcome certain barriers that we may have. I know some it's easier for some they may be extroverted and then you have the introvert and but we are we are called nonetheless to proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ to those who do not know them. It, it could be in a small setting. It doesn't have to be on a grand scale in front of thousands of people or even ten people. It could be a one on one. We have a discipleship um, program. I think we're still doing it. We're still doing the one on one. I know it's still kinda and it's great because you can uh, you can get one-on-one -on -one with somebody and grow, go through the material together. And, um, and, and you can even do it, you can do it with two believers. You can do it with somebody who's just, just curious um, about the faith. But uh, regardless if they're curious or not, you have an objective. And that objective is to plant uh, the seeds of the gospel within their hearts. And God brings forth that increase. You be faithful. You are in that field laboring. And it's God who's going to be bring forth the increase if he uh, desires to do that. And then um, a third, we're going to um, kind of understand our responsibilities of it. I mean, the, our entire responsibility is laid out in Scripture, and we'll kind of go through that. And then provide a deeper confidence. I want to provide a confidence, not in ourselves, but a confidence in God's Word. I, I tell the, you know, the kids in the, um, the apologetics course that we're, um, me or Ben, are kind of uh, taking the kids through right now that you know you don't you don't need to have this fully orbed understanding of philosophy you know it's, it's good to understand those those things that's it's great but your confidence is in God's word and you don't need to shudder you don't need to shy away I mean you have something that isn't movable uh, and I told him this as well I mean you're talking to a culture especially if they you know if they uh, subscribe to, you know, moral relativism and, you know, postmodernism and things like that, uh, their worldview is going to, they're going to need version 2.0 by the fall. And so they have no standard upon which they can stand. It's immovable. It's always changing. It's, it's like a moving goalpost or a moving target. Um, and, you know, I tried to just rivet onto their hearts and minds. Like, you have something that has never changed. God never changes and so his word never changes, and it is the power of God to salvation. And that's where the power lies. It doesn't lie in ourselves. The Spirit equips us in every way to be able to do that. We just need to move forward with doing it. And some of those things we'll talk about tonight, like one of the barriers uh, is kind of involved with, you know, that is, you know, the culture is going to think um, uh, well, how the culture frames it now is that, you know, you don't, you don't agree with us on every single point. You don't agree with our understanding of sexuality, morality, and things like that. You're a bigot. You're, you know, you're out of date. You're, you're, you're you know, you just, you need to, you're out of it, and we're going to shut you down. But you, you can't, you, you can't do that. You can't, sh you can't shut down. You have to love these people. Uh, you know, even people within the cults, you know, Mormonism, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, things like that, you need to love these people. I mean, what they are doing is, uh, yes, it is. It, it dishonors God because it distorts his truth. And it's leading people in the way of destruction. 
but you've got to be the one. Uh, we, we can't just sit by and watch these people perish. Uh, we have to love them with the word of God. And it, that is our standard. And it will do the work. I'm telling you, you know the word. And that's one of the things we'll talk about too. Uh, you know, some people feel, oh, well, I'm not equipped. You know, I, I don't know, you know God's word as I should. Okay, let that motivate you to devour God's word so that when, whenever I'm in that situation, whether it's in season or out of season, convenient or inconvenient, I'm ready. I'm ready to go now. And this is how I'm going to love these people. And because anything we want is the people to know Jesus Christ. I mean, the greatest joy that, I mean, think about people who do not know Christ. They have no joy whatsoever. They have an idea of true joy. They'll try to seek it in every other thing, alcohol, uh, uh, wrong sexual relations, all these sorts of things. And they'll, they'll come up empty every time because they're bootleg. They'll never give it. Um, I think it was uh, St. Augustine says, my heart, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Um, but I want to start out, it was uh, so great. Uh, MacArthur started off this study, and he was, he, he's kind of launching off from um, uh, Matthew. Um, I think he was Matthew, it wasn't Matthew chapter 7, maybe in Matthew chapter 4. But um, so he starts off, and he was, he was reading, uh, MacArthur was reading at one point uh, the Presbyterian Journal. And within that journal, within the pages of that journal, they had this one um, article in there, and this, it was kind of a, a parable. And this is how it went. And I thought it was a fitting way to, to introduce tonight's lesson as well. He said, on a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occurred, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was just one boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea, and with no thought for themselves, went out day and night tirelessly, searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little life-saving station, so it became famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and give up their time and their money and their effort to support of its work. New boats were bought, and new life-saving crews were trained, and the little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and, and poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided at the first refuge of those who were safe from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots and the beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they used it as, as a sort of a club. Fewer members were now interested in going on the life-saving missions, so they hired a, a lifeboat crew to do this work for them. The life-saving motif was, it was still prevalent in the, the club's decoration. There was a liturgical lifeboat in the room where the where the club held its initiations. About this time, a large shipwreck, uh, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in loads and loads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty, sick. Some of them had black skin. Some of them had yellow skin. The beautiful new club was considerably messed up. So they, so the property committee, immediately had a. A shower house built outside of the club where the victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being, you know, somewhat unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out they were still called a life-saving station but they were finally voted down and told if they wanted to save the lives of various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their new own life-saving station down the coast a little ways, which they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old one. It evolved into another club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit the coast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. 
And that is a simple and striking illustration of the history of the church. Striking, simple, and yet heartbreaking and sad. It should not be. But the work of life-saving is the, is the work of evangelism. The purest and truest and noblest of the most essential work of the church will ever do. It's the most essential work that the church will ever do because we're commissioned by Christ. We are to go out. You look at the very early parts of the church. I mean, you see uh, Silas and Paul and Peter and everybody, Apollos, um, just going about on fire so that people can come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But we can go back this let's look at the heart of God in saving people. If we go back in the Old Testament, we'll start there. We'll see how God thought about the heart of God for the lost. Look at this. This is uh, incredible. So uh, this is in Jeremiah 36, uh, the very first part, verses 1 and 2. So um, a, a, little, a little background, a little context will be helpful here. Um, so at the end of um, Chronicles, we have um, Josiah. And Josiah is finally, after years and years of apostasy, spiritual apostasy, the, the people of God finally have a godly leader. And his name is Josiah. And uh, Josiah... Um, did away with all of the uh, the ashram, all the false gods, just destroyed them all throughout the whole land from Jerusalem to Naphtali, everywhere. And he also, during this time, long time of just rampant apostasy, uh, the house of God was in disrepair. Nobody was there. Everybody's up in the hills worshiping who knows what. Molech, the ashram, all sorts of things. And they threw in a little of Yahweh too. Why not? We'll cover our bases. Um, but he goes and he has a, a huge project to restore the house of God. And during that time, he finds the book of Moses just lost in there. Uh, most likely Deuteronomy. But um, so we have Josiah, a godly man. And then, unfortunately, um, his son takes power and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Something that has been going on year after year after year. And so this is where Jeremiah comes in. Jehoiakim is Josiah's uh, son who does not know the Lord. And so the Lord is going to pin something through Jeremiah. And listen to this. In the fourth year, Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what he says. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day that I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today. Now this is the crucial. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. There is a purpose in what God is giving there. He is giving them, and it's the reason he gave his law uh, in Moses. It was, for the, it was a blessing for the people. It was for their good. And just like uh, these words that uh, Jeremiah is going to be writing down, actually he's going to be dictating, and Jeremiah, uh, Baruch is going to be writing it down. But it was for the purpose clause there. You see that? He does it so that they may hear these things that he intends to do, with the purpose of them turning from their evil way. He wants them to turn away from evil to do what is right. Um, another good one, and I mean, just look at, I uh, just mentioned it, I'll say it in passing, Deuteronomy 4, you know, the, 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 the law was a blessing uh, to them and, and, and the nations around them were supposed to, to look upon them and go, what, what kind of God is this that would give him, give this people such a law as this, that he's so near and close to them? And then all the prophets as God's mouthpieces were uh, purposed in giving them God's way in order they may turn from their sin. But uh, Ezekiel 33 is a really, really good. 33 verses 7 through 9. Um, 
So you, son of man, that's to Ezekiel, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give it to them. You shall give them a warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his evil way, he will, and he does not turn from his evil way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you shall have delivered your soul. You see how the importance God is placing upon you going out and telling other people? He's telling it in the context of a prophet here to tell the people of Israel. He's doing it for a purpose, not to just uh, you know, crush them into the ground. He's doing it because of his heart of love for these people. Um, a little bit later in the same chapter, um, verses 10 through 7, this is, this is wonderful. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus have you said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. And turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? You hear God's heart right there for his people. Turn from your, I have no pleasure in the death of anybody. But he is absolutely justified in condemning the wicked for what they have done. And he will reap his glory for it. Um... Deuteronomy 6, um, I'll turn there real quick and that'll be, my, that'll be it for my Old Testament. Um, Deuteronomy 6 is the Shema. Uh, we'll just do, I was going to do 1 through 2, but we'll do 24 through 25. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God. Why? For our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all the commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. We have the heart of God for saving people right there. And then you have the New Testament. You have Jesus. For the Son of Man came to what? Seek and save that which was lost. John 16. So you have the God the Father. You have Jesus. And you have the Spirit in John 16, 8. Um, and when he comes, that, that is when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Just like God in the, uh, in the Old Testament, Ezekiel, he's going to give us a new heart to be able to walk. He's going to cause us to walk in his ways. But the, it said the Spirit will con, uh, convict concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's a good thing. You know, uh, Paul talks it all the time. You know, what, what, the, the law didn't say, but it, it was like the school bus driver to take me where I needed it. It showed every blemish, every wart, every pock on my face. It's a, a great exposure. And it has a purpose to drive you to the cross. Um, and then so you have the father... You, had, you just got himself, and then um, those texts from Jesus' mouth. You also have Paul, and echo, echoing this from Romans 1, which we're going to go in a little bit. It says, I am a debtor to the Greeks and barbarians, to the wise, to the unwise, so much as, in, <clears throat> so as, much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Whenever you think, you know, I'm not good enough, I don't have uh, the oratory skills, I don't have pervas uh, per persuasiveness, there we go, of speech, um, the power of, of, uh, of the eloquence of your speech has nothing to do with it. It's good to have that, but the power is in God himself and is in his word, and it will bring forth life out of death. Um, 
And then in the ninth chapter, oh man, I love the ninth chapter of Romans. I mean, he is really just pouring out his heart for his people, Israel. He says, um, I say the truth in Christ, I, I do not lie. My conscience also bears, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I wish myself a curse from Christ for my brother, my kinsman, according to the flesh. It was his great concern in chapter 10. He said, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. And then 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I will become all things to all men that by some means I might win them to Christ. That was in light of him saying that I have all of these uh, rights available to me as an apostle. I do have these rights. But he said, I did not take those rights upon myself in order that I would not be a hindrance to other people so that would pave the way for the gospel and not hinder it. He could have had these things. He had every right to. But it, it talks about, um, you know, Paul, he, he surrenders his rights right there. I want to turn there real quick. He said, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in their sacrifice, uh, sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Okay? But, he says, I have made no use of these rights, nor am I writing um, to secure these things. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For which, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. And so he says, essentially, he wants to put nothing in front of anybody. He wants to become all things to all people in order that, all, that everybody that he comes in contact with would be saved. So... Has anybody read Pilgrim's Progress? Pilgrim's Progress. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's, I've, I've made it, it is one of the most, it's, it's an allegory that John Bunyan wrote, and it's phenomenal. I haven't gotten all the way through it yet, but um, the first little part here, it's, I'm going to get you to think just a moment, like personally, um, about certain family members, friends, acquaintances, and things. But let's just think in, in terms of Matthew 7 real quick, where Jesus talks about the small gate and the wide gate. And um, so I'll, I'll, I don't want to butcher the text, so let me go there real quick. Um, and then I'll ask you that question. So Matthew 7, um, verses 13 and 14, says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So we have the small gate and the wide gate, the small gate leading to life, the wide gate, the broad way, and many who have entered it leads to destruction and to hell. And the reason I said the, the Pilgrim's Progress are just reminding me of that portion where prog, uh, Pil, uh, Christian is making his way. He just went to the wicked gate and he sees these two gentlemen jump over, uh, jump over the wall rather than go in through the way. Who is the way? Jesus is the way. So they're trying to circumvent, trying to find their way around it. And so they jump this fence and he's like, what are you doing? He's, you have to make it through the wicked gate. You know, where, where, are, you, where are you coming from and why, where are you going? Um, but, you know, think of your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers. You know, consider just, you know, what path are they on? And have you shared the gospel with them? 
and I think if we're all being honest, there are many who um, we know the condition and we know the state that they're in and, and, and haven't been as faithful because of various reasons and things like that. But just, you know, think a, just think a second just for those people that you know and the trajectory of their life. And we don't know when it is that the Lord's going to take us, take us home. And there's consequences. You know, R.C. Sproul used to say all the time, his, his column was uh, called, Right Now Counts Forever. And it really does. Like right now has eternal significance for everybody. Um, but just just thinking about that and kind of have that on your mind as we're as we continue to work through this, and you know it it has this being mournful, doesn't it? Does it does it break your heart to know that? If you look at um. Luke in his Beatitudes Jesus says something interesting he says blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh as opposed to what is you who laugh now for you shall mourn and weep and there's a sense in the godly in this world it's not like we're unjoyful that's not what he's talking about we're the most joyful people that you will ever know um but what it does mean is there are points in the Christian life where, I mean, we, we weep now because we weep over our sin, for one thing. We're, we haven't shed that completely until we go to glory. But there's another sense when we weep, we weep for other people as well. And that's, I mean, you look at, I just read Jeremiah well, uh, just a few moments ago. What kind, what, what kind of prophet was he called? He was called the weeping prophet. I mean, he wept for his people. He saw the just the un, unbridled God, ungodliness that was rampant in his day, and it ended up uh, it was so pervasive and just so widespread that it caused God to bring judgment, and they all went to exile. And you have Jesus. What does he do over Jerusalem? He weeps over Jerusalem, and you, you hear you know you hear uh, you read in uh, Hebrews. You know, Christ praying with loud groans. You look at John chapter 17, Jesus praying for his church. Um, and just looking, I'm sure Jesus knowing just the state of people's hearts and just breaking over the fact that these people are in absolute rebellion against their creator. And they're indifferent to it. And we have to, we have to understand that with not just family members, but uh, co-workers and, and and uh, just just acquaintances, anybody anybody who bears God's image is an object of God's mercy. We don't know who they are. Um, I remember uh, was it uh, Spurgeon? He said, "If I knew who are all God's elect, and they had a, a yellow stripe down their back, I'd just go lift up coattails." But you don't. You don't know. That's why you go evangelize everybody. And the gospel is a sacred trust to us, right? And it's something that we're all called to do. I, remember, I mentioned at the end of all the gospels, you have a commission, you have a call for not only it had the immediate context was the disciples, right? And the apostles, you go out, you do this. That has further implications upon us. We do the same thing. We are in Christ. We are entrusted with these things. It's a responsibility. You steward your money for God. Uh, you steward time reading in God's word, but you steward um, your time of evangelism with other people as well. Uh, I mean, just look. I mean, just read Acts. I mean, these people were just on fire just to go wherever uh, God had called them to go. Um, they gave up so much of themselves in order that people would come to the knowledge of Christ. They were beaten to death. And, you know, they look back and probably as they were being beaten, and Paul, I can only imagine what he looked like at the end of his life, probably chewed up a piece of bubble gum or something. But um, as they were being beaten, you know, the, the words that Christ had told them about the world, he's like, you, 
when the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And then you have the <clears throat> the wonderful the wonderful words in um, in Philippians. For his it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but you have been called. Or I'll say that again. Um, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here I still have. There's consequences to attaching yourself to Jesus. Jesus talked about it, about taking up your cross daily and following him. There's going to be consequences when you follow in faithfulness uh, to your Lord. All right, so hindrances to witnessing. What is... David, what's, what's your greatest hindrance in witnessing? Yeah, sometimes, uh, you know, talking about the, with the kids in the apologetics course, you know, somebody who doesn't, well, who, who doesn't uh, believe, let's just say, God's word. So you have to start off with, you know, maybe the existence of God. But you do that, we do it, we're teaching them presuppositionally. So we presuppose God's word. We presuppose God's existence. We work from that. And then, um, so, you know, somebody like that, um, but it's good to provoke them, like even, you know, questions of morality. You know, what kind of morality do they have? And you can ask them why. And they may say, you know, I just, you know, I'm just being a good person. I'm just trying to be a good person. Well, what's good? Tell me what's good. And they may tell you what's good. And then you can always, you know, really get to the heart of it and ask them by what standard. You know, by what standard do you call that good? If you're an atheist, you have no such standard at all. You have no categories for wrong or for evil or good. So really, you can't tell anybody really anything. They're just your opinions. Um, but the greatest, you know, the greatest thing we, we can do is, you know, regardless if they um, believe God's word or not, to give it to them anyway. Whether they toss it to the side or whatever, you know, at least it's there. It's implanted within them. Um, you know, I was in the church for, man, I didn't come to Christ till I was 27. That's a long time in the church, uh, being, you know, unbelief. But every time, I'm sure I was in there, seeds, 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 people planting them. And, you know, that one time, like a keg of dynamite went off. Um, and now, you can't get me shut up sometimes. Oh. <laughs> um but yeah, that's why we have to redirect sometimes. Like, I, I, I fall into this too because I, I'm like, well, you know, I, I got to have that clincher. I got to have that clinching argument. And it's not, I mean, the arguments, yes, they're here. You need to shut down all the arguments, but they're right here. You, you've got, you literally have everything right here. Our only barrier, and it's mine too, and this is one of my um, resolutions, I guess, for the new year is to devour God's word more and more and more and more. If I truly, you know, if I truly love God, I'm going to love his word. But if I, if I love God, I'm going to love other people. And I've got to, I've got to know his word in order to be able to talk to people. I owe that to them as well. Um, do you have any particular hindrances? And so, yeah, that, that, that's good you brought that up. Um, and people automatically, whether you're just 
you may just give them uh, just a statement or just, uh, you know, and start injecting some truth and just, just having a conversation. And all of a sudden, because it imposes some kind of obligation, because the gospel, I mean, God's word imposes obligation. He has a right to. But they, they draw a wrong inference from that. Right? They think it's, well, because I said so. And at work, this happens sometimes to me. Um, not that I've, I've I, that's one thing, I've got to be more faithful at work in my, uh, my witnessing. Um, but somebody will, they, they, they know who I am. Um, but sometimes they'll, I don't know, just in a conversation, casual conversation, they'll, you know, throw an F-bomb or, you know, something like that. And they, they just look at me, oh, I'm so sorry. And I'm just turning around, and I'm like, why, why are you sorry to me? Yeah, I'm not the one, you've, I'm not the offended party here. Yeah, you've, you've, you've taken the mouth that God has given you, and you use it to, uh, to yell curse words. Um, but it's not because of me. So uh, without them even thinking about it, they automatically think that, just in that kind of uh, scenario. So imagine when you're starting to uh, speak to them about certain things. But it's what's great is when you start to actually have a conversation with somebody and you, you, know, you begin to tell them these things, you don't need to believe because I say this. So this is not vintage Trey Waters here, okay? I didn't come up with this. Um, you do these things because, uh, and we'll talk about this in a moment. How am I doing? Uh, I gotta speed up a little bit. Um, yeah. Um, you, you do these things because because your creator has told you. Um, and he definitely has a right to impose those kind of obligations on his creatures. He, he, he's created you, he owns you, uh, and therefore you're accountable to him and you're not accountable to me. Um, it's kind of just one way they can kind of ease themselves out of the conversations, but um, God will give us those, those, those instances, just like he did with the apostles. We just have to be faithful and do it no matter the cost. We have to accept the occupational hazard that comes along with the Christian witness. Um, and, and, and in today's age, that might be, you know, like I said earlier, calling a bigot, uh, be, you know, uh, antiquated in your thinking, uh, narrow-minded. Uh, everyone's narrow-minded unless they agree completely with you. Um, but I, I remember Dr. Walter Martin uh, given this, uh, given this imagery, he was friends with uh, a, a heavyweight fighter uh, back in the day. His name was Rocky Marciano, I think. Um, you know, yeah. Uh, but Dr. Walter Martin, he he was uh, an authority on the kingdom of the cults, and many, man, many people in the uh, Watchtower. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and Christian scientists and uh, they came to faith through his his faithfulness and he would he'd have it was hilarious he would have people Mormons following him from church to church every time he would give a lecture and uh, but anyway he was talking it was three o'clock he, he had developed this relationship with this uh, this heavyweight champion and uh, they were in Florida and it was three o'clock in the morning and uh, they were sitting there eating spaghetti and uh, he, he started talking to him, and he said, you know, I, I just can't understand, you know, your style of fighting. He's like, well, what are you talking about, Mar uh, Martin? And uh, he said, well, he, he, he did a peekaboo style. So you was kind of, you know, peekaboo. So he would take hits and hits and hits and hits on his arms and his elbows, five, six, seven, eight. Uh, to one, to one shot, because all this guy needed was one clean shot, and he would knock you out. And he, he, he said, I'm, he, uh, Walter Martin was looking at me, it's like, I never understood why it is you just get pummeled so many times, but yet he was the champion, he'd win. And he, 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 told, him to, he told him to square up. And Walter Martin was like, crazy I might be, you stupid, I'm not. And uh, he's like, no, we're not going to do anything. So they squared up, and he said, throw your arm out. So he threw his arm out. And, uh, and then Rocky threw a, threw a left at him, 
and just arced right underneath his arm because he had a five-inch length on him. So Walter Martin was five inches longer in his arc than the other fighter. He said, if you could hit anywhere as hard as I could, you would annihilate me. But that's why he developed that style. He would take blow after blow after blow in order that he could get in there with one good, clean shot and end it. And he used that as an illustration that, you know, we have to, we have to understand the, uh, the occupational hazard that comes along with it. We have to take those blows in order that, one, we get in there and we're a champion, okay? Um, but, you know, it, it just comes along with the territory. I mean, you look at Jesus Christ was God incarnate, right? John the Baptist was the greatest of all the prophets. John the Baptist lived an ascetic life, an abstinence. He didn't drink um, wine, strong drink, anything like that. Jesus came eating and drinking, and look what they did to them. What makes you think you're going to make it? So we've got to stop trying. Um, we're not going to be thought of highly in this world. and they, they, We never have. But people are going to come to faith, and it's going to be through our faithfulness, but God's going to bring forth that increase. Um, and I'm going to, since I'm going to use my last 10 minutes here to, you know, what is it? I, I think this needs to be, I'm, I'm glad that um, they covered this in the last part because I was like, man, we really need to get to the heart of this issue. Like, yeah, we're talking about giving the gospel to people, but what is the gospel? You know, I feel like we shouldn't be saying that in the church. We should know what the gospel is. But, you know, if you go on certain websites and, you know, certain sermons and certain, you know, blog posts, you're going to come up with a host of just varying things that really, at its core and essence, that's, that's, it's got some truth to it, but it's not the gospel. I can give my, um, I can give my testimony up here, which I, I hope we start to do that again. We did that on certain Sundays, people get up here and give their testimony. It's phenomenal to see what God has done in the life of a believer. But I could give that, and there are some, you know, some points in there that could point to it, but it's, it's not the gospel. So what is the gospel? And what, what must a person understand in order to be con uh, confronted with the gospel? And one area we can look at this is, I'm going to, uh, this will be our, our last part here, and it's going to be in Romans chapter 1. If any um, presentation of the gospel um, was more apparent, it was right here. And it's apparent in all of scripture, but uh, Romans, Paul, it goes step by step, almost systematically, uh, as he writes to Romans, he, uh, the first part through uh, chapter 1 through um, chapter 4, he's building his case, okay? So, listen to this. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God, or for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Um, and then verse 18, he starts his kind of universal indictment. Okay? It's going to be all humanity. Uh, the very first part is going to be Gentile. He's going to progress and go, no, 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 Jews, you are not, you are not out of it. He's charging you as well. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So we have the very basic structure. So we're trying to figure out like, what, what are the, the parameters? What are the, what, are the, what are the critical truths around which the apostles and the disciples structured their argument and their presentation to these people? And that structure is gonna be like this, and you're gonna see it. At various lengths, uh, some do it, uh, you know, shorter than others. Others are more at length. But in all of them, they all can be 
uh, found to have the same kind of structures and same contours of the gospel. It starts off with God, understanding who God is, um, man, what has man done, why am I in the predicament that I'm in against this holy God, um, Christ, the way that God has made um, peace, a reconciliation to be made, and uh, instead of condemnation, we are brought out of condemnation. Um, and then the last is going to be uh, response. Like, okay, this is great news, and this is how God has done this through Jesus Christ, but how can I become a part of that good news? What must take place in order for that to come? So, and that's obviously faith, belief, and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So he starts off with God. I mean, people have to understand this, okay, that there is a God. He created the whole world, and the fact that he created the whole world means you, you, me, everybody out in the world has a purpose, a particular purpose, because it sprang forth from the mind of God, okay? God doesn't think, do things just for whatever reason, arbitrary. And that brings value. That brings value to people, intrinsic value to human beings. But it also says that uh, as my owner, as my creator, he has the right to impose those obligations. I'm accountable to him in every way. And what does he say that we do? And God is holy, by the way. Um, I, don't, I, I do not want to miss that. Uh, Exodus uh, 34, I will not miss that. Um, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. When God wants to tell you who he is and his character, listen to that. A God who is steadfast in love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving transgression, iniquity, and sin. You know, that is the God, but it doesn't stop there, does it? God wouldn't be holy. He wouldn't be just if he just swept sin underneath the rug, right? Just like Christ, okay? Our sins don't just vanish, okay? There's a transaction that happened on the cross. Our sin imputed to Christ, his, his righteousness imputed to us. That sin went somewhere. Now, that's what, the, you know, I, just, I, I tell the children in children's church, you know, that, that sin that we've all been a part in, that actually went somewhere. It went up on the back of Christ. It's a hard thing to think about every time we sin. But this God says, but who will by no means Clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So what that's saying in there is God's holiness. Okay, we sinned against the holy God. And what Romans is talking about here, is I'll just speak back to you real quick, is that we... In our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. We suppress what we know to be right, and we exchange it for a lie. So we have a holy God. Now we have all of humanity, Greek at this point, who suppress what they know to be true. And that is a real height of just absolute arrogance and um, just—it's just hard even to think about that we can we can consider God. And then at that point, in considering our creator, we would rather, and we exchange it for something other than who he is. Whether it's images resembling animals, creeping things, or even ourselves, or something resembling another human being. But we have that there. We have God. We have our stance before God. So we have a God that is holy. We have a God that is just. And we have sinned against this God. And not just, I mean, it's sin that required the death of God's only son. So what do we do? If we keep going, that's really not that good news, is it, at the beginning? It's not good news at all. If you look at Paul in Acts when he's at the Areopagus, 
dealing with the philosophers at the time. It's interesting there. He never gets to the gospel. He never does. He gives all the bad. But it's interesting what happens. They end up coming back and some end up being saved. So at some point, Paul labors for the gospel. Um, but listen to this. Uh, we, we continue. It says, uh, For all have sinned and fall short, or for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Go down a little bit. Ah, here we go. Sorry. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So he states what the law is, then we cannot be justified by it. But he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's it. That's what's available. That's how you can, you know, be out from underneath the condemnation. There's no other way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody's going to come to the Father except through him. So now we have a way out. God has provided a way. But like I said, how do we become part of that? It's for those who believe. If we look um, in Acts 13, we have it, uh, we have it right there. Acts 13. It says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. This is verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Okay? So you have forgiveness of sins. It's not explicit, but it's implicit that those sins are against God and that you need to be forgiven of those sins. And... The way that is provided is through what? The forgiveness of sins praying to you through this man that is Jesus Christ. But how do we become part of that? Listen to verse 39. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The, Mo the law of Moses was never intended to save. Okay? We have grace that saves. Now the law was good and the law was righteous. We can go through all Psalm 119 to see that. And Psalm 19. Um, but it did drive them to repentance. And that was a good... And that's what it produced. Um, does, it, does that kind of paint it a little bit better like when you're talking to somebody to hit those key points like who God is his holiness um, his, his, his stance as creator and that you are not autonomous that you uh, that there is this being this creator of the universe who to, you owe everything and that you have sinned against him I mean we, we can't look at the world and think everything's okay I mean even a cursory glance at everything you, you, this world is not okay as it should be I mean even, you know, unbelievers, they, they, they know that they have done wrong. They know lying's not wrong. And the, the law has been written on their hearts. That's an act of God. I mean, that's a, that's a wonderful blessing of God, too, that he restrains evil. There's going to be one day where it's not it's going to be just unrestrained in hell. Um, and that he's provided through Jesus Christ a way that we can be made right with him. And it can be applied to me through faith in Jesus Christ, not in a Christ that I just I make up, not a Christ um, that's you know one of my own making, the one I can kind of deal with and get around his certain commandments. And uh, Paul talks about it in Second uh, Corinthians chapter eleven. He goes, I'm afraid that you're going to fall for another Jesus, another gospel, another spirit. None of those things are going to be able to save. It is the only Jesus that you're going to find in the scriptures. Okay? Um, but I hope that this tonight's discussion kind of helped in some way, even if it's just a little way to 
deepen your confidence, not certainly, not, not necessarily in yourself, but in what God has entrusted you with. He's given you something. He's equipped you with his spirit to be able to do a task. Okay, that means you can do it. He's given us, he's equipped us with everything. We just need to be faithful. And, you know, it creeps in sometimes, even with me and uh, every, every simple human being. But, you know, sometimes we just want to be, we want to be, we want to be liked. But in, in, in thinking like that, now I've gotten to the point where I love myself and my comforts and my position, maybe at work or society, more than I love that individual. And certainly more than I love God. It's something we cannot afford to do. Uh, we, we can't pass the buck anymore. Uh, we, we've got to be about the business of doing this. Um, but I hope it yeah, encourages you to be in God's word more, just seeing what his heart is on the matter. Look at these various passages. I mean, just go to Acts. Keep going through that. Dig your way through the book of Acts. Um, and just, just see. Um, even when they were beaten, it was amazing. They would count themselves worthy to be persecuted for the sake of the name. And the name was Christ. And I'll tell you the name of the game. You please everybody else and you don't please Jesus. The name of the game is please Jesus. Okay. David, would you please pray for us? I'll put you on the spot. <laughs> Show you, I'll tell you some, uh, some, some uh, if you want to kind of uh, just be encouraged in, in terms of your evangelism. Uh, Jeff Durbin is, is good to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he does a lot of ministry, street ministry. Um, he'll just go and talk. Like, he just went to, uh, he went to, he goes to a lot of events. Like, you know, rallies that are like one he recently did was a rally for for abortion. And so he goes in the midst of that kind of environment and injects God's word. And he, he was talking to these three women he does it with such love and such grace and he lays it all right there. So they're just like, Well I guess I guess so. He, he I mean it's it's just amazing with God's word what you can do to an argument. Um, Ray Comfort always actually Ray Comfort and Jeff teamed up recently He's been a blessing, and uh, I think um, one of the guys here, he just ordered some uh, Ray Comfort kind of tracks, and I think we're going to go out at some point and do some kind of street street uh, evangelism. But Jeff Durbin's really built up my, like, my confidence in just in doing that, and just not necessarily just confidence that I'm seeing him doing it, and it, is com- it does build that up, but just seeing that, you know what, I, I need to be doing this as well. And um, yeah, the, the Lord's blessed it. Um, he goes to the Mormon temple, talks to them. It's, it's, uh, it's incredible. We'll be faithful with, uh, with God's word and God's word. I mean, you look at the early church, man. I mean, fishermen, you know, when, when Peter, and, uh, Peter and John were arrested, they're like, how in the world? These, these are uneducated men. What's going on here? The Spirit of God was with them to equip them to do what they uh, were purposed to do. We're purposed with the same thing. We just got to be faithful.
Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's another charge all, all the time too. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah. Oh, great. Oh yeah, so more Pentecostal. Yeah. Yeah. But, but we don't bring it up. We don't. You know, she knows that I come here and I know she is there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I mean, she's just she's all about God. So good. When, when we need a God fix, we 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 can eat together. We have you know dinner together, lunch together. That's crucial to have. Um, yeah. Especially. Um, other relationships too, like um, somebody that's more mature and seasoned than you in the faith to kind of feed off of and to have them disciple you um, is crucial. Um, Yeah, and that's awesome that you have that. I I wish I had something like that at work. (laughs) It's the opposite at work. (laughs) 